Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, Matthew chapter 28 for our time of study in God's Word this morning. Every Sunday we open up the Bible and we just try to look at what God has to say to us uh, through His Word. And this morning we're going to be looking at the resurrection account that we find in Matthew uh, chapter 28. We'll be looking at most of this uh, chapter Matthew 28, and the title of the message is Beholding the Risen Lord. We're going to stare at Jesus today. Normally, it is not polite to stare, uh, but we will stare at Jesus today, and I can assure you he does not uh, mind. You know, some things transform you when you look upon them. It was my freshman year of high school when I first laid eyes on a girl named Donna Woods. And when I saw her, my heart uh, immediately was smitten. I soon lost interest in any other girl and wanted only to be her husband one day. Literally, I can say that seeing her, beholding her changed the trajectory of my life. When I saw mine and Donna's firstborn child, our daughter being born about 30 years ago, in that moment, I didn't just discover my daughter. I discovered myself as a father with a heart that had doubled in size in the space of just a few moments. Standing in the delivery room, I had only seen the crown of her head. As she was coming out, when I felt as if my heart had leaped out of my chest and wrapped itself around her, and I knew in that moment that I would never be the same. This past uh, Wednesday, uh, mine and Donna's first grandchild was born. And when I laid eyes on our granddaughter, I didn't just discover a granddaughter. I discovered myself as a grandfather for the very first time. And I discovered my wife as a grandmother, both of us with hearts that have never been bigger. In fact, Donna said to me the next day, she said these words to me, my heart is so big right now that I feel like it's going to burst right out of my chest. And both she and I have been sending pictures to family and friends because we want everyone else to look at our granddaughter too. And that's why she's on the screen. (laughs) And you uh, grandparents know what that is like. But you know, as wonderful as all of that is to look upon a a grandchild, uh, there is something infinitely more powerful than beholding a grandbaby, and that is beholding Jesus. When you lay your eyes upon Jesus, when God removes the scales from your eyes and you lay your eyes upon Jesus and behold him, I'm here to tell you that you don't just discover Jesus, but you also discover the truest and fullest version of yourself. John Piper has often said that beholding is a way of becoming, and that is most true when it comes to beholding Jesus. And if anyone ever needed Jesus to appear and to behold him, it was his earliest followers who loved him and had followed him and who witnessed his death. Jesus' disciples had followed Jesus for about three years. They had put their trust in him. But on Friday of the Passion Week, Jesus got crucified and was killed on a cross leaving his disciples' faith in him in utter shambles. On top of that, these disciples almost certainly felt at least partially responsible for what had happened to Jesus, and they were all left asking themselves what they could have done differently to produce a different outcome. They all had abandoned Jesus in his hour of greatest need. Out of fear for his own life, Peter himself had denied Christ 
three times, even swearing an oath, saying that he did not even know who he was. And Jesus heard him say that and turned and looked at him. And the Bible says that Peter covered his head and went out and wept bitterly. A week earlier, Jesus' disciples thought that Jesus was on the verge of establishing his kingdom on earth, but now he is dead. And these disciples are left without a Messiah to believe in. And they find themselves stranded in a cruel world that had killed him and without a way to resolve their own feelings of guilt. That's how Jesus' followers felt Friday night and all day Saturday after Jesus' death. But then Sunday came and Jesus was raised from the dead. And imagine how much Jesus' disciples could benefit on this Sunday of the year from a good long look at the risen Lord Jesus. How much do you stand in need of a good long look at Jesus this morning? You'll be interested to know that Matthew chapter 28 is not simply the story of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, there's Uh, Very few details that are in this chapter about the event of the resurrection itself. This chapter is the story of God trying to get Christ's earliest followers to look at Jesus and to look at the fact of his resurrection. In fact, notice the language of looking and seeing that we see throughout Matthew 28. The story begins in verse 1 with women coming to look at the grave. In verse 5, the angel says to the women, I know you are looking for Jesus. In verse 6, the angel tells the women, come see the place where he was lying. In verse 7, the angel tells the women that Jesus is going to Galilee and he says, there you will see him. In verse 10, Jesus instructs the women to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. And he says, there they will see me. The disciples go to Galilee. And in verse 17, the text tells us they saw him. On top of these references throughout the length of Matthew chapter 28, we encounter the Greek word that means to look or Behold, and this does not show up in all of the English translations of this chapter, but observe how many times the command to look shows up in the Greek text in Matthew 28. In verse 2, we see the word look said by Matthew to us, his readers. In verse 7, twice we see the word look said by the angel speaking to some women who had come to the tomb of Jesus. In verse 9, and then again in verse 11, we see the word look said by Matthew to us, his readers. And then in verse 20, in the final verse of this chapter, we see the word look said by Jesus speaking to his disciples and to all of us. All in all, in this chapter, some women are told to look. Jesus' disciples are told to look. And we, the readers, are told to look. So let's obey this call this morning and let's look, like really look at Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are not a Christian and you're not even sure why you're here today. Perhaps you are just like Jesus' disciples in some ways. You've, you've sinned and you're weighed down with the guilt of the things that you have done. Perhaps you are hopeless. Perhaps you are plagued with doubts and fears. And you feel crushed by the world that you find yourself in. Perhaps your noblest dreams have been shattered by this cruel world. And perhaps even by the evil inside of you. Much to your disappointment. What you need more than anything else is to behold the risen Lord this morning. 
And Matthew 28 is designed to provide you plenty of looks at Jesus. In fact, as we go through the verses of this chapter this morning, we're going to observe eight looks at the risen Lord Jesus in Matthew 28. Eight looks at Jesus. Look number one is we see him appearing to women who were looking for him. We see Jesus appearing to women who were actually looking for him. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And we see God being true to that promise with two particular women in Matthew 28. Observe what happens beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, that Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Everyone has their own personal demons, we like to say. But Mary Magdalene, according to the Bible, was once actually possessed by seven demons. But Luke chapter 8, verse 2 and Mark chapter 16, verse 9, teach us that Jesus had cast those demons out of her. And here she is with another woman named Mary on her way to the tomb to look at the grave, expecting to find Jesus' body in this grave. When these women were almost to the tomb, verse 2 tells us something that had just happened. In verse 2, it says, And look, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Remember, there were Roman guards who were guarding this tomb. And notice that the angel, upon removing the stone, what does he do? He sits on the stone. Why does he do that? Is he tired? No, he does so for two reasons. First of all, to make sure that none of the Roman guards get the idea of trying to put the stone back in place. He also sits on the stone because he's been assigned to wait there and deliver a message to the women who were on their way to the tomb at this very moment. And his timing could not have been more perfect as the Roman soldiers regain their bearings and come to consciousness and no doubt flee the scene. The women arrive at the tomb and they see the angel sitting on this stone. So observe what happens in verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. The angel tells the women, literally, stop being afraid, which implies that they had become fearful when they first saw this angel. He's assuring them that he means them no harm. But he does tell them about the status of Jesus speaking to the women. He says, he, Jesus, is not here for he is risen just as he said. Jesus had made repeated predictions of his coming death and that he would be raised on the third day. And then the angel says, come see the place where he was lying. And the women would have looked into the tomb and observed the Grave clothes lying there without any body inside those grave clothes. And they would clearly see that Jesus is gone. Then the angel speaks to the women in verse 7 and says, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And look, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Look. I have told you. Clearly, the women are dazed at this point. And the angel is trying to get them to stay focused on what he is saying to them. His use of the word look in verse 7 is kind of the equivalent 
of a parent today snapping their fingers at their child when they're talking to them, trying to get the child to look at them as they speak and to pay attention to what they are saying. Well, the women hear what the angel instructs them to do, and they immediately obey. Look at verse 8. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Notice the two contradictory emotions that the women are feeling at the same time. With fear and great joy. A few moments earlier, they were fearful because of the sight of the angel. Now they have fear at the news that Jesus is alive, which may strike us as somewhat odd. But they had to have been asking questions like, is the resurrected Jesus angry? What kind of raw, unbridled power is this? that Jesus would come back from the dead? And what kind of judgment is he about to bring upon Jerusalem for what its people did to him? And what will his disposition be toward us and towards his disciples who abandoned him before his death? Somewhere in their minds are questions like these, inducing fear, but the greater emotion that they're feeling is the emotion of joy. That's why the text says that they simply had fear, but that their joy was great joy. Their joy was greater than their fear. Their great joy means that they totally believe the message of the angel that Jesus is truly resurrected, that he is alive, and deep down these women, though they have questions and some fears, they know that the resurrection of Jesus is good news for them. And so we're told in verse 8 that they ran to tell Jesus' disciples the news of his resurrection. And, and while they're running to tell the disciples, look at what happens. Verse 9 says, and look. Jesus met them saying, rejoice. Some of your translations just say that Jesus met them and greeted them. But the Greek text reveals that Jesus actually gave them a command. Literally, he meets them and says, be rejoicing. This was a standard greeting in this day, but it's infinitely appropriate right here on the lips of Jesus to these women. He's raised from the dead. He sees the great joy that these women have in their hearts, and he's affirming their joy. He's telling them, speaking to the women and saying to them, you have great reason to be greatly joyful. So rejoice away. Dear sisters, there's no bigger advocate for these women's joy and for our joy than Jesus and for your joy than Jesus. By his own words, Jesus' agenda and all that he does for us, all that he says to us, all that he prays for us is ultimately that his joy might be in us and that our joy may be made full. That's his ultimate agenda. And with a heart that longs for these women to know the fullness of his joy, the resurrected Lord Jesus stands before these women and commands them to be rejoicing. And he says this to them because his resurrection from the dead is the single greatest thing that's ever happened to these women in their lives. The response of these women is as spontaneous as it is swift. And this brings us to the second look that we have in this chapter at the risen Lord Jesus. Number two, we see him receiving worship. We see him receiving worship. Observe what the women do in verse nine. 
The text says, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. I heard someone once say that when you see the Grand Canyon for the first time, no one has to coach you on how to respond. No one has to say to you, now let your mouth hang wide open and say, wow. Like no one needs to coach you in how to respond to a sight so amazing as the Grand Canyon. Because the sight of the Grand Canyon generates a spontaneous response because of its greatness. And that's what happens to these women when they see the resurrected Lord Jesus. They immediately come up to Jesus and they take hold of his feet and they worship him. And no one had to tell them to do this. The Greek word that is translated worshiped here literally means to kneel toward someone. And given the fact that Matthew tells us that they took hold of his feet, we can infer that these women are completely bowed to the ground, paying homage to Jesus in the most humble way possible. And by their posture at Jesus' feet, they are essentially saying these words, you are God, Jesus, and we are not. We are at your mercy trusting you completely with our fate. Do unto us as you please, and we are completely at your service. Just their physical posture is communicating these ideas. Have you ever met anyone who provoked this kind of response from you? Someone who so impressed you, someone who so captured your heart, that you adore them this much and you happily yield your whole life to them in this way? Have you ever trusted anyone this much? If you take a good, long look at Jesus and if God opens your eyes to see him as he is, you will respond the same way that these women do here. That's what these women do and Jesus you'll note, does not rebuke them for worshiping him. Earlier in this very gospel, Jesus himself said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's saying there's only one person that you should worship, and that is the Lord your God. And yet here we see Jesus being worshiped, and it's the same word. He does not rebuke these women. He receives their worship. You know why? Because he's God. And he's worthy of such worship. But Jesus wonderfully does more than receive their worship. And this brings us to the third look at the risen Lord Jesus in Matthew 28. Number three, we see him calming his worshipers' fears. We see him calming his worshipers' fears. Observe what he says in verse 10. The text says, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Don't forget that these women were feeling two emotions, fear and joy. Jesus has already affirmed their joy and told them to rejoice. But as to their emotion of fear, Jesus is addressing that here. And he's saying, stop being afraid. Stop fearing. And I love what these words from Jesus reveal about him. As these women are worshiping him, Jesus is studying them and he observes that they are afraid. So he speaks to their hearts and says to them, stop being fearful. And guys, this is why we can be free to worship Jesus in full surrender. Because as we worship Jesus... He studies us and he tends to our needs even while we worship him. He doesn't respond to these women's worship by saying, you know, this is great. I'm getting your worship. That's all I really care about is getting worship from you. No, as they worship, he's looking at them and he sees a need. He sees fear and he addresses that and ministers to these women 
and says, stop being afraid. Jesus cares about us even more than we care about us. He loves us better than we can love ourselves, and he can speak to our needs and calm our fears like no one else can. Some people will pay money and lay themselves on a psychiatrist's couch to get their anxieties tended to, and I have no quarrel with them, but these women bow at Jesus' feet and they get their anxieties tended to by the risen Lord Jesus who died for them. And by the way, this call to stop being fearful is a call that Jesus only gives to those who are worshiping him. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, the psalmist says, Pay homage to the Son or worship the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And then the psalmist says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. These women in Matthew chapter 28 are taking their refuge at the feet of Jesus. And to them, Jesus says, stop being afraid. You know why he can say that? Because the greatest place of greatest safety in all the universe is at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him. No one ever has anything to fear at Jesus' feet. Nowadays, there are college campuses that have safe spaces that people can go to and be protected from speech that upsets them. But God provides the safest space that you will ever find, and it's at the feet of Jesus. It's the place where you will hear Jesus say, you are free to stop being afraid now. Just as we see him saying to these women, maybe you struggle with fear, anxiety, and there may be multiple things you ought to do about that. I'm just asking, do you ever go to the feet of Jesus? You ever come to him with that and worship at his feet and let him study you and speak to you and minister to you as you are bowed low and worship to him. There's something else that we see Jesus saying to these women who are bowed before him. And this brings us to our fourth look at the risen Lord Jesus in Matthew 28. Number four, we see him acting with grace toward those who had failed him. We see him acting with grace toward those who had failed him. Standing before these women, Jesus continues speaking, and he, he tells them, look at verse 10, to go and take word to whom? To my brethren, to leave for Galilee, and there, he says, they will see me. Notice that Jesus wants his disciples to know that he is alive. He wants them to know where to go so that they will be able to see him and wonderfully, he wants them to know what he thinks of them in this very moment. He calls them brethren or brothers. This is amazing grace. Jesus does not speak to these women and say, go take word to those traitors who abandoned me in my darkest hour and tell them I'm raised. No, he refers to them as brothers he clearly does not want his disciples to be left hanging at all about what his disposition is toward them. Do you see that here? You know, you and I could be so petty sometimes. And I suspect that some of us would have spoken differently than Jesus does here. Think about it. If you were Jesus and your disciples failed you the way Jesus' disciples failed him, even cursing and swearing that they never knew you. And God raised you from the dead on the third day. What would you have done in connection with those very disciples? Would you have wanted to rush word of your resurrection to them? 
Or would you have wanted them to sweat it out for a little bit? Would you have wanted to leave them in some doubt as to what your disposition is toward them? When they eventually do hear the news of your resurrection and they approach you, would you be all passive aggressive with them? If they came up to you and said, hi, Jesus, I heard that you were raised from the dead. It's that's wonderful. And it's really good to see you. Would your face remain expressionless toward them? Would your eyes refuse to meet theirs? Would you say to them, yeah, I I was raised. Let's see. I was raised on the third day after you abandoned me, actually. Would you want them to be left with the distinct impression that they have a ton of work to do before you ever warm up to them again? Well, Jesus isn't petty like we can be. He doesn't do any of these things because he's not petty like we are. And because he just died so that his disciples could have atonement for their sin of abandoning him and all of their other sins. And now he wants his deeply flawed disciples to know that he has been raised and he calls them brothers. You see, when Jesus thinks of those who belong to him, he does not think of who they are at their worst He thinks of them as forgiven of their worst. And he thinks of who he has made them to be. And that is brothers and sisters of him. The word brothers here that Jesus uses denotes family ties and deep abiding relationship. That survives adversity and hurts. Given the fact that Jesus is now raised from the dead, it's in my mind, doubly amazing that Jesus would call his disciples brothers. We might have expected him to call them disciples or followers, and that would have been gracious enough. But brothers? That conveys a side-by-side connection with them that is so exalting to these disciples and reflects such condescension on Jesus' part. Jesus has never appeared more highly exalted than he is right now. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth as the resurrected Lord. And what does he want to do with that authority? He wants to be a brother to these very disciples who had failed him three days prior. That's amazing. That's wonderful, wonderful grace. And this is the way Jesus is towards Those of us who believe in him. He's the only Lord that we can believe in who will never let us down and who always stands ready to forgive us whenever we let him down. We're blessed to get this glimpse of Jesus acting with such grace toward those who had failed him. But we see him doing more than this in this chapter. This brings us to the fifth look at the risen Lord that we get in Matthew 28. Number five, we see him drawing near to those who worship him. The Bible in James chapter four, verse eight, beckons us to come to God and gives us this promise, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God doesn't just wait for us to reach him. As we begin to move toward him, he moves toward us. He runs toward us in grace We see how true that is in the coming verses. Skipping ahead to verse 16, observe what happens in verse 16. We're told that the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. He told them exactly where they could find him. Matthew obviously is skipping over a few post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that happened in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And jumps ahead to sometime later when they headed to Galilee, as Jesus had told them to do. And we can imagine that there were others who came with the disciples on this occasion. To this mountain that Jesus had designated. But it's important for us to recognize that Matthew keeps the spotlight entirely on the 11 disciples of Jesus here. So they approached the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And 
Sure enough, they see him. Look at verse 17. The text says, and when they, speaking of the 11 disciples of Jesus, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some were doubtful. These 11 disciples respond to the sight of Jesus the same way that the women did earlier in this chapter. And as soon as they see Jesus, they worship him, meaning that all 11 of them bowed down and knelt toward him and worship Jesus as God. But Matthew also says, but some were doubtful. This is not some other some, in all likelihood, in addition to the 11. In other words, the text is saying some of the 11 disciples who were worshiping Jesus were doubtful. All 11 were worshiping. Some of the 11 who were worshiping were worshiping with doubts. And we don't know for sure what their doubts would have been in this moment, given the fact that Jesus was probably manifesting something of his post-resurrection glory here. Perhaps some of them are wondering if the person before them was really Jesus and they weren't 100% sure Perhaps they're having doubts about how close they should try to get to him. We know they didn't approach him too closely because in the next verse, we learn that Jesus had to come toward them. Perhaps they're wondering what will be the nature of their relationship with Jesus going forward now that he has been raised from the dead. Perhaps they're wondering what they're supposed to do with the rest of their lives. Some of the disciples who are worshiping Jesus here had no doubts at all, but some of them were plagued by doubts more than the others. Nonetheless, it seems that all of them were bowed to the ground and were worshiping Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to their worship? Some worshiping without doubts and some with doubts. Verse 18 says, and Jesus came up. And spoke to them, saying. If any of them were doubting if it was really Jesus, then he will draw closer to them. Or come toward them so that they can see for sure that it is really him. And if that is not sufficient, he will speak to them so that they can recognize his voice. And know for sure that it is him. And if any of them had doubts about how close they ought to get to Jesus in this moment, he will answer their doubt by coming toward them rather than staying at a distance. All in all, I love the fact that Jesus does not reject their worship and say, how can how can any of you have any doubts after all that I have done and all that I have said? Leave me and. Don't even try to worship me until all of your doubts are gone. No. He draws near to them. He receives their worship. And he speaks to them, even speaking to their doubts. And the words he speaks are designed to remove all doubt from their heart. If you're here this morning and your heart is full of doubt, My counsel to you is don't stay away from Jesus. In fact, your doubts, your moments of doubt are the very times of all times when you need to come to Jesus the most and let him be the one who helps you with those doubts. You see, true worship is not just coming to Jesus with your faith. True worship entails coming to Jesus with your doubts and letting him speak to your doubts and address your doubts with himself. And there's no better way to address your doubts than to bring them to Jesus and to allow Jesus to address those doubts. Timothy Keller was once talking to a woman who was bemoaning the fact that she could not find Like the one big airtight argument that proved that Christianity was the one true religion. 
And Timothy Keller responded by saying, what if instead of sending an airtight argument, God sent an airtight person? And he then said, God didn't send an airtight argument into the world. He sent an airtight person, and that is Jesus. And that airtight person, the risen Lord Jesus, is drawing near, coming towards his disciples in grace, and he's speaking to them here, even in the doubt that some of them had. But this is not all that he does. We get a sixth look at the risen Lord Jesus here in Matthew 28. Number six, we see him assuring his worshipers of his absolute authority. We see him assuring his worshipers of his absolute authority. Observe what Jesus says in verse 18. Speaking to his disciples, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Standing on this mountain in Galilee, at the very juxtaposition between heaven and earth, Jesus makes this announcement, and this announcement is extremely good news to these 11 disciples of Jesus who love Jesus so much. Imagine hearing the news that the person that you love most of all and who loved you enough to die for you, imagine that such a friend has become the absolute Lord of heaven and earth. And from this point on, he can do whatever he pleases with total power to do as he pleases. That's what it's like for these disciples to hear this amazing announcement from Jesus Jesus is declaring his power. And he's saying to his disciples, I have absolute power to do whatever I want, to use the resources of heaven and earth and do whatever I please. I can completely carry out all of my loving intentions with regard to you. There'll never be a time when You needed Jesus for something if you're a believer in him and Jesus isn't there for you. And he says to you, listen, you know, my heart, you know, I would have loved to have helped you. But there were other forces that overpowered me and I couldn't get to you. We'll never have to worry about that with Jesus. He's also letting his disciples know that he has absolute power to make sure that his plan for the ages comes to pass and that his agenda For the ages will be fulfilled. His announcement here is an absolute guarantee of total victory in the end for him and for all that he purposes to happen for the good of his disciples and others and for the good of all of us in this room and around the world who believe in him. In the days ahead, whoever Jesus wants to save, he can save. Whenever he wants to save them, he can save them. Whoever he wants to forgive, He can forgive them whenever he wants to save them and forgive them. He can do all of that and whatever he wants to do for us, he can do. And there is nothing and no one that can stop him from carrying out his intentions. We're blessed to see Jesus in this chapter speaking these words of assurance to the 11 who are bowed low before him in worship. But this is not all that Jesus does. We get a seventh look at the risen Lord Jesus that we find in Matthew 28. Number seven, we see him telling his worshipers to make disciples of him. Listen to what Jesus says to them in verse 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father And the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. These disciples would have loved to have stayed on the mountain and worshiped Jesus in this moment forever. But Jesus is saying, go. He's saying, I'm calling upon you soon to be leaving the comfort of worship settings like this and ultimately to leave Jerusalem and Judea 
and to go into all the world and to tell others about me and make disciples of me. He says, make disciples of all the nations with no ethnic group excluded. Jesus is calling upon his disciples to go into every culture, into every nation on earth beyond Israel's borders and to call people to faith in Jesus Christ and to make them disciples of Jesus. A disciple is a learner. So a disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus and who learns his ways and seeks to follow his teaching in every particular. According to Jesus' words here, when people do come to him and become disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to be, look at the text, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that God is three persons in one holy essence, which is why we're told to baptize people in the name singular of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All three of these divine persons were united in their mission to bring salvation to sinners. God the Father, we're told in Scripture, chose those whom he would save before the foundation of the world was laid. And it was he who sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the life that we failed to live and to die on the cross, the death that we deserve to die. We're told in Scripture that the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to do absolutely everything that Jesus did from his righteous life all the way to offering himself up for our sins on the cross. God the Father and the Spirit raised up Jesus from the dead, and then the Father ascended Jesus to his own right hand. And at the request of Jesus, the Son of God, the Father sent his Holy Spirit into the world to empower the preaching of the gospel and to open the hearts of people to the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. So I'm talking to you this morning. I cannot open your heart. If your heart has never been open to the Lord, I can't open your heart and you can't even open your heart. If your heart is closed to God, it's because you're dead. You're dead. And the only hope for you is that the Holy Spirit touches your heart and brings life where there is now death and opens your eyes to see Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are involved in this thing called salvation, totally united in this enterprise of salvation from beginning to end. And anyone who has truly become a disciple of Jesus should find it to be an incredible honor to be baptized in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus, I ask you, have you been baptized? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you should be. And if you have believed in Jesus and you have not yet been baptized, let us know that on the back of the connection card that is in your bulletin. And we'll have someone contact you and talk with you about that. In these verses, Jesus is saying, I want disciples of me in every nation on earth because he's the Lord over all the earth. He's saying, I want you to baptize them. I want you to be teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Not some of what I have commanded. You can't pick and choose from what Jesus has said. But he says, all that I have commanded you. And Jesus would say, what I've commanded you is not just a list of a bunch of do's and and don'ts. He would say, I've told you that I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. And I've commanded you. Here's my commands to believe in me, to find rest for your soul in me. And to abide in me and to satisfy your thirst with me 
and to love one another. Those are the commands of Jesus. And he would say to his disciples and to us, now I tell you to go into all the world and make disciples of me, baptizing them and teaching them to join you in living this way. We're blessed to see Jesus giving his disciples this very clear commission here. If any of them had any doubts as to their mission, Jesus takes away that doubt here. These disciples no doubt loved being disciples of Jesus, and they have never loved Jesus more. And now they're going to get to double their joy by speaking to other people about him and bringing others into the joy of following Jesus too. There's one final look that we get of Jesus in this chapter, and that is number eight. We see him promising to be with his worshipers forever. We see him promising to be with his worshipers forever. Literally, verse 20 has Jesus saying, and look, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The disciples already knew that Jesus would be with them at the end of the age. Here he's promising to be with them during the time period that lies between the present moment and the moment when the end of the age comes. This means, guys, that we always have Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We always have him with us to help us to make disciples of Christ, to teach them to observe what he commands It means that we always have Jesus with us simply to be our companion as we walk through this world and the challenges that we face as we journey from the brokenness of sin all the way to glory. Personally, I'm not so much amazed that Jesus will be with me at the end of the age when I'm glorified and I'm perfect and I'll be much easier to hang out with when I'm in heaven and perfect I'm amazed that he wants to be with me even now when there's still so much brokenness that is in my life. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't wait until we're perfect before he decides to be our best friend and our closest companion. He befriends us now. And guys, it's the friendship with Jesus that transforms us from day to day into what he wants us to be. All in all, Matthew gives us eight wonderful looks at Jesus in this chapter. My question for you this morning is, will you look to Jesus who died for you and who was raised from the dead on your behalf? Will you gather up all of your brokenness and your guilt and your doubts? And will you bring them all to Jesus? And will you look to him and allow looking at him to transform you? Will you fall at his feet and become a worshiper of Jesus, essentially saying to him, you are God and I am not. I am at your mercy, trusting you completely with my fate. Do unto me as you please, and I am at your service. Will you say that to him this morning? If you will, based on what we have seen in Matthew 28 today, here's how Jesus will respond to you. He will say, be rejoicing. Don't fear. Your family. I've got full authority to save you and to love you and to empower you. Go and make disciples of me. And I am with you always. Always. If you've never bowed before Jesus and surrendered to him as your Lord and Savior, I plead with you this morning to bow before him, to believe in him, to call upon his name and surrender to him as your Lord and as your Savior and allow him to be the champion of your salvation. You're going to live somewhere forever, be it heaven or hell. And where you spend eternity will be totally determined by what you did with Jesus. Did you believe in him? 
or did you reject him? In closing, there's actually, I can throw this at you real quick as we close. There's actually four commissions that we find in Matthew 28. Four commissions essentially to go and to tell. Let me show you this real quick as we wrap things up. Matthew gives us these four commissions and then he literally leaves the chapter, the book, with an unresolved tension regarding the fourth of these commissions. In verse 7, the angel commissions the women saying, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. In verse 8, the text tells us that they, the women, departed quickly and ran to report it to his disciples. So the angel commissions them and they go to obey. In verse 10, Jesus commissions the women to go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. In verse 11, we find the women on their way doing exactly what Jesus had commissioned them to do. In verse 13, we see the chief priests giving the Roman guards some money and commissioning them with a message saying to them, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And sure enough, verse 15 We're told that the Roman guards took the money and did as they had been instructed, and this story was widely spread. So far, it seems that everyone is obeying the commission that has been given to them. But then, in verse 19, Jesus says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's his commission. And the book ends there. And we're left asking, will the disciples obey the commission that Jesus gave to them? Will we go and make disciples as Jesus commissions us to do here at the end of Matthew? You see, in one sense, the gospel of Matthew ends in Matthew twenty-eight twenty. In another sense, the gospel of Matthew never ends, but is simply the prologue to the rest of history. And every time you or I open our mouths and we share the good news of Christ with others, the story of Matthew continues. And I basically stand in front of all of you This morning, in obedience to that commission that we find at the end of Matthew's gospel. And I ask you, will you look to Jesus this morning? Will you become a disciple of him? Will you believe in him and call upon his name? And receive the forgiveness of sins through his shed blood at the cross? And will you be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? I plead with you to believe in him and then upon believing in him, begin your journey of learning to observe all the good things that Christ has commanded of us. And if you're looking for a church home in which to embark on that journey, we would invite you to make Cornerstone your church home. Here at Cornerstone, I can honestly say we are definitely no better than anyone else. In fact, we're probably worse. We're just a bunch of broken people who are on a journey from the brokenness of sin to what will ultimately be utter and complete wholeness in Christ, in glory, being transformed day by day as we stare at him and behold him. And I'm here today to invite you to join us on that journey. Let's pray together. Lord, as we have already prayed prior to this Sunday and the days leading up to this day, We know that you are the only source of salvation from beginning to end. You have provided the way of salvation, and it is you who touches hearts 
and brings life where there is death. And I do pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here this morning whose heart is dead, and maybe even as they've sat through the worship and the message, they they have felt nothing. They have virtually seen nothing. We pray, Lord, that you would just touch their hearts and give them life where there is death. They are a corpse spiritually and headed for a Christless eternity under your judgment, and we so do not want that. Look upon us in this room with your mercy and touch every heart including mine, that we may see you, Jesus, like we have never seen you before and be transformed by what we see. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you as we always do at this point of our service and for the privilege that we have of of giving to support your work here in this local community and around the world. We pray that you would bless all that is given in this offering and then help us as a church to be faithful with what you provide for us, that we would use all that is given for your glory. But more than money that we give, Lord, we give ourselves to you and surrender to you. And yield to this sovereign Lord who gives us such a delicious commission to go to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that you have commanded, knowing, Lord Jesus, that you are with us now, always, and all the way to the end of the age. It is in your name that we pray and all God's people said.